You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me, uh, <clears throat> let me welcome you to the United States Institute of Peace. Um, I'm Bill Taylor. I'm the executive vice president here uh, at the Institute of Peace. Um, many of you have been at USIP before, but probably very few of you have been in this building before because we've only been in this building uh, since really last fall. Um, so it's still kind of new and um, we're still getting used to it and uh, kind of breaking it in. You know how you do in a, in a new house and it's all, you know, figuring out how things work. Uh, one of the questions that I asked the, the team here was whether or not you wanted to have shades up or down. And the consensus was down, so that Alexander can do his thing on this thing. However, at some point we'll put them up and you can see the view. That, that's one of the re other reasons that, that we'd like to, like to have you here. We are so pleased to be able to co-host this event. Uh, this is a, a great opportunity. It, it happens once a year. I think that's right, once a year. Um, and it's lo people look forward to this, to, to kind of track uh, the rule of law index. Um, it's particularly timely this year um, in that the Institute of Peace, um, at the request of uh, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, just finished up a study um, on fragility and fragile states and rule of law and extremism. And you will not be surprised, this group will not be surprised to hear that the conclusion from that was that in fragile states where the rule of law is not well established, there is violence and there is extremism. Um, and so this kind of analysis that you do every year um, helps us think about where to allocate resources. And one of the big things that Senator Graham wanted us to take a look at in this study was how to decide where USAID, where DFID, where the US government, other governments spend resources. What priorities do, do they use? And one of the things should be, as, as we will hear today, um, the rule of law and places where it's going well, places where it's not going well. And where it's not going well, that's likely to, we're likely to see violent extremism, conflict, and that if, if, like the Institute of Peace, where we are after preventing and resolving, uh, uh, mitigating conflict, uh, this is an important uh, concept. So, um, all to say, we're very pleased uh, to have you all here. I will uh, recognize uh, the, the, uh, the group, the World Justice Project people here. Uh, by the way, you may have seen on the way in, there were people with badges of visitors guiding you here. Now this is not normally. Normally the hosts will guide you here, but as an evidence of our good working relationship with uh, the World Justice Project, uh, many of your volunteers are helping ours to guide, guide people in. So it's a great working relationship that we are. Um, we, you can follow us on social media if you want to, at, at USIP. Uh, the hashtag for today is hashtag R-O-L-I-N-D-E-X, Rule of Law Index, R-O-L Index. Um, and you can also check out our podcasts, um, uh, for, well, this one, but also others that, that you will, that you will uh, uh, be interested in. Um, 
I would like to recognize uh, William Hubbard, the chairman of the board of, the, of directors of the World Justice Project, who will speak to you in a moment. I will turn this over to him. And also Betsy Anderson, the executive director of the World Justice Project, who you will also, whom you'll also hear shortly. Um, and then there are several of my colleagues here at the Institute of Peace who are going to uh, uh, also be up here as well. Philippe Leroux, Matin will uh, be the moderator. Um, Maria Stefan will, will be up here, Hoyt Yi will be up here, and there will be others. So this is, uh, this is a, a, again, an integrated effort that we're very pleased to co-host. Let me see if there's anything that I was supposed to say that I haven't. Um, no, I think I've hit everything I was supposed to. So the only thing left for me to do is to introduce William Hubbard uh, as the chairman of the board. Bill, thank you very much for your hospitality. Uh, as Bill said, uh, my name is William Hubbard. I have the privilege of serving as chair of the board of directors of the World Justice Project on behalf of our board, our officers, and our incredible staff. I'd like to welcome and thank you all for being here today to learn about the latest findings from the World Justice Project uh, Rule of Law Index, our effort to measure the rule of law worldwide. And Bill, thank you again to the United States Institute of Peace for your help in co-sponsoring and hosting this event. It's a real privilege for us to be here and to share this event with you. We appreciate it very much. Uh, we are great admirers of the Institute's efforts to promote peace around the world. And it, as I said, it's an honor to be here uh, working with you on this occasion. For those of you who are new to the World Justice Project, we are an independent, multidisciplinary organization working to advance the rule of law around the world. And we do this in several ways. First, by collecting and analyzing original independent rule of law data presented in the World Justice Project Rule of Law Index, which you'll hear a lot more about in just a few moments. Also, by supporting research, scholarship, and teaching about the importance of the rule of law, its relationship to development, and effective strategies to strengthen it. And finally, building an engaged global network of policymakers and activists through strategic convenings, knowledge exchanges, coordinated campaigns, and locally led initiatives to advance the rule of law. One might ask, why should we care about the rule of law? Effective rule of law reduces corruption, combats poverty and disease, and protects people from injustices large and small. It is the foundation of communities of justice, opportunity, and peace, underpinning development, accountable government, and respect for fundamental rights. The rule of law matters in terms of economic, socio-political, and human development. With more rule of law comes higher GDP, greater democracy and peace, and better education and health outcomes. So for more than a decade, we have work to produce a universal declaration of the rule of law and rigorous technical indicators for measuring it. I encourage you to visit our website to read our universal principles in full. But in summary, in summary, the rule of law is a framework of laws and institutions that embodies the, these four principles. Everyone, everyone is accountable under the law. Two, the laws are clear, just, and evenly applied. Three, the process of enacting, administering, and enforcing laws is open. And four, justice is impartial, 
and accessible to all. To measure how the rule of law is experienced and perceived by the general public worldwide, we created the WJP Rule of Law Index. It really is a massive undertaking, now relying on more than 120,000 households and 3,800 experts survey, expert surveys in 126 countries. The index is a diagnostic tool for identifying countries' strengths and weaknesses in areas such as fundamental rights, justice delivery, security, open government, and effective checks and balances. It is the most comprehensive data set of its kind and is considered the world's leading source for original data on the rule of law. It is our hope and intention that these findings will serve as a powerful resource for advocates, policymakers, researchers, businesses, legal professionals, and others looking to improve the rule of law in their countries. A final note before turning to our presentation of the data. I'd like to invite all of you to the World Justice Forum 6 in The Hague to be convened in late April under the theme, Realizing Justice for All. As a meeting place for governmental and non-governmental actors, private sector leaders, and, and the donor community, the forum will address the principal challenges to delivering justice and provide space for advancing concrete solutions. We intend for the outcomes of the forum to feed directly into the UN high-level political forum on sustainable development goal 16 in July and the UN summit on the SDGs in September. Before I introduce Alejandro Ponce, our chief research officer, I'd like to invite all of you to join us to celebrate this index launch uh, to our offices, the WJP's offices, for reception from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. later today uh, at 1025 Vermont Avenue Northwest. We'd love to see all of you there as we celebrate this special occasion. Occasion. Now I'd like to introduce Alejandro, who will be walking us through some of the key findings of the 2019 WJP Rule of Law Index. Again, thank you for letting us participate in your afternoon, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here at the Institute. Thank you very much, William. It's a pleasure for me to present the results of the 2019 edition of the Rule of Law Index. Um, the book that you have in, in your hands and that you're going to see the results today summarize the views of 120,000 people in 126 countries, views from more than 3,800 attorneys all around the world who talk to us about their experiences with the courts, with the police, their perceptions about the performance of the institutions in their countries, their perceptions of corruption, or the extent to which they are victims of violence or crime. 120,000 people talking, just we analyze, collect that information. The team that you see over here work diligently to summarize that information into a few scores that can give us a perspective of the rule of law around the world. The information that we collected is organized in nine factors that we call, so constraints on government power, 
absence of corruption, open government, fundamental rights, order and security, regulatory enforcement, civil justice, criminal justice, and informal justice. All of these outcomes essentially are manifestations of the principles that William mentioned and essentially mean just that the laws imposes limits on the exercise of authority, but at the same time that the state has to enforce those laws just to authorities, but also to members of society so that people can live without violence or that they can uh, have access to mechanisms to solve the problems and redress the grievances. Each one of these indicators is summarized into 40 indicators, 48 indicators that you can look at in your uh, book, but essentially just summarize outcomes just within each one of these broader categories. So we summarize all that information into these indicators. So as I mentioned before, so it's 120,000 people, more than 3,800 experts um, in 126 countries, which are 13 more countries than the previous edition of the index, all of them in Africa, 94% of the world's population, and more than 500 questions summarized into this course. Now let's go to the global results. So first of all, so you can look at the information in your book, but it's also available online. You can look at some of the uh, results uh, globally. You can also look at uh, comparative tables uh, where you can see the rankings of countries, the position in which each one of the countries is. Uh, you can also look at information organized by regions or by level of income. Uh, or you can look at the specific scores by factor. If you're interested in a particular factor, uh, just, uh, you can see how countries perform in each one of these dimensions. Uh, compare countries against each other online. You can check that on your phone. And obviously the most important, if you're interested in a particular country, looking specifically how the country is performing in each one of the eight factors where you can see the global score, the global ranking, the score for each one of the different factors, the ranking for each one of the different factors, as well as the regional and the income group comparisons. And then looking at each one of the elements uh, that we measure, or each one of the indicators that we measure uh, to, uh, uh, to calculate the score uh, in, at the bottom of the country profiles. Now, what do we learn from this massive data collection exercise? So this year, uh, you have a, another booklet in your hands where we put uh, some of the main insights from the data, global insights that we can learn from looking at trends and looking at the data. Just the first one is the most basic thing, which essentially tells us about the top performance and the bottom performance of the world. The top three performers are Nordic countries, Denmark, Norway, and Finland. These countries have had this position for the last three years. And the bottom performers, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Cambodia, and Venezuela at the bottom. Then the top performers by region, uh, Denmark in Europe, Georgia in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, Nepal in South Asia, UAE in the MENA region, New Zealand in East Asia and the Pacific, Namibia in Sub-Saharan Africa, and Uruguay in Latin America. Then we can look at the performance 
the change in performance from the previous year in this graph, you're looking at the countries that move by more than 1%, either up or down in the rule of law score. Uh, the important thing to look at here is not only the individual countries, but that more countries actually decline in their score than improve. Only 23 countries improved more than 1% in their score, and 31 countries declined more than 1% in their score. Among the countries that improved the most are Zimbabwe, Guatemala, Ethiopia, and Malaysia, and the countries that declined the most were Nicaragua, uh, Iran, Jordan, and Venezuela. An important aspect, of course, no, is not only looking at the changes, but the position that the country is um, just uh, in the index. In this graph, we essentially combine just the results that we have from the changes from the previous year and the, uh, the position. So essentially, you can look at the countries above the median or below the median, and whether countries improve, you can see that at the right in green, or whether the countries decline. Where we see most countries uh, in this graph are in, a, in the quadrant where we are below the median and decreasing, so which is the upper left upper quadrant. And the countries where we see actually the fewer countries is in countries that are below the median and improving in rule of law. Only 13% of the countries are in that quadrant, 35% of the countries are in the previous one. Then, looking at each one of the specific components of the rule of law. In this graph, what we see is the percentage of countries that improved or declined in each one of the factors of the index. In the uh, dark colors are the changes from the previous year, and in the light colors, it's the uh, the changes from uh, the last four years. So we have currently several years of data that allow us actually to look at comparisons and look at trends or how countries are moving over time. What we see is the following. So what you will see is that at the top, just 64% of the countries declined in limits of government power. So these are essentially the governmental and non-governmental checks, such as a, a free press. Uh, that can contain just the authority of the executive. 64% of countries declined, 36% of countries improved this year, and this is a trend that we have seen over the years. 60% of countries, when we look at the last four years, 40% of the countries, when we look, uh, just again, improved when we look at the last four years. Another uh, factor that it's, uh, that it's important to highlight is the one in fundamental rights, factor four, just particularly when we look at the last four years, 70% of the countries have seen declined and 30% have seen improvements. Same in criminal justice, 61% last year, 55% when we look at the last four years have seen declines. Now, uh, in this graph, you can look at how countries have moved in rule of law over time or the, over their last four years. So what you see is that in general countries just sometimes improve, but sometimes decline. They are moving up and down. Just there are very few countries that actually have consistent trends uh, over time. And the percentages speak about just the, the nature of how difficult sometimes is to change uh, rule of law in, in countries. Uh, only 14 countries show during the last uh, four years consistent improvements, and 18 countries show consistent declines. So supporting this idea that I mentioned that countries in general show positive trends, then probably just backslide and, and go down. Now, 
this year, something that uh, we introduced this year is 13 new countries in Africa, uh, so which expanded the coverage of the continent. Uh, the, uh, importantly, just the first two positions in Africa are two of the new countries included this year, which are Namibia and Mauritius. And these countries perform even relatively well, just as compared to other uh, countries uh, in the world, and compare, in some cases, at the top, uh, just in the individual uh, factors of the index. Going to another region, Europe. So when we look at the change in Europe over the last four years, what we see is that most countries have improved in rule of law, but you see two red arrows. These two red arrows are probably familiar to all of you, just are Poland and Hungary. These countries have had experienced uh, severe declines, and then you can see as well the particular elements in which these countries have declined. In the case of Hungary, for example, constraints of government power over the last four years have declined 17%. The regulatory enforcement, civil justice, criminal justice, 14%. Fundamental rights, 11%, with the small improvements in corruption. Poland, same thing, just constraints on government powers have declined in the last four years, 25%. Fundamental rights, 14%. Obviously, this calls, to, uh, calls our attention to what's happening just more broadly in the world. In this graph, what we see is when we actually look at factor one, just constraints on government power uh, over the last four years, and compare all the countries, how countries are moving in this particular factor, what we see is that 60% of the countries in the last four years have been declining in this particular factor, which may... Uh, just call for a rise in authoritarianism in the world. Copies are available, just I invite you to uh, look for the report online. Thank you to all of you, thank you to the magnificent staff that actually was the one who did all this work that uh, was actually a lot. Just you have seen them and uh, I invite you to, to talk to them if you have uh, questions. So with that I will leave the floor to Philippe uh, for the panel, thank you. Good. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Philippe Leroux Martin. I'm the Director for Governance, Justice, and Security here at USIP. Um, let's jump right into it. I want to introduce the members uh, of the panel who are joining us today. Uh, so uh, we have the pleasure of having Maria Stefan, who is USIP's Director for Nonviolent Action Programs, uh, joining us today. Uh, we also have Hoyt Yi who is a senior fellow here at USIP on loan from the State Department. We're very, very lucky. Um, and then also Betsy Anderson, who was introduced earlier, who is the executive director for at WJP. Uh, so let's jump right into it. I want to thank Alex for uh, giving everyone uh, the presentation of the data for, for this year. My first question goes to um, Betsy, and it's a follow-up to the presentation that Alex just gave. Uh, so, Betsy, I wanted to start with you um, and, and ask you, what are the global trends of significance when we look at the data? Um, and, and what are the implications uh, of such global trends? Okay, well, thank you very much, Philippe, and, and thanks to everyone here at, at uh, USIP for welcoming us. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, um, Alex, I think, summarized uh, the global trends uh, very well, and they're reflected in the Insights uh, booklet that you all have. Um, certainly what jumps out um, uh, is this global decline in rule of law overall, and particularly in a number of factors that, uh, that seem to align with uh, what many have observed as, as rising authoritarianism around the world. I, I want to um, maybe make a brief note of caution, however, about, uh, about those kind of generalities um, when looking at this kind of data. Of course, anyone who works in rule of law appreciates that it varies dramatically country to country. And even if you dig into the data, you'll see a lot of variance uh, within each country across, across the variables. And so one of the things that we think is very powerful uh, about this index methodology is that it enables that kind of specific analysis of, of um, individual country circumstances. But that aside, we do see these trends, and now with several years' data, um, they do jump out at us. And what, um, what I want to say about that is, in addition to, to Alex's observations, one of the things that I find most concerning um, about this, these signs of rising authoritarianism is that they seem to be being affected in a number of countries through manipulation of laws and legal institutions. So we have this, this um, challenge of states using rule of law terminology, rule of law rhetoric, to justify actions that are actually degrading the rule of law. And that becomes, as a political, as a rhetorical matter, very difficult to counter. Um, and, uh, and we see that uh, unfolding in a number of different ways. I can get into the details as the conversation unfolds, the different uh, tools that uh, authoritarian leaders are using to manipulate the law um, to undermine uh, rule of law. But I think that's, that's a, a thread that runs through here that's really important to, to pay attention to. And, and as for the implications, well, I think one thing to note is that the factors of, of WJP's eight factors, the factors that are declining, that are pulling the index down in so many countries about constraints on, on government authority, fundamental freedoms, open government, criminal justice, these factors are the ones that are over time contribute most to instability and for, for uh, some of the things that you here at USIP are most preoccupied with. And so I think this is a particular alarm bell for folks working on fragility, on, on conflict prevention. This data suggests that those factors um, that cause the kinds of problems that preoccupy you are uh, trending in the wrong direction. Thanks, Betsy. I mean, one of the other insights that I that I picked up on was uh, when Alex was presenting the slide about Europe and the fact that many countries in Europe uh, and in Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe seem to be showing particularly significant declines in government uh, constraints on government power. Um, so I wanted to turn to Hoyt, given your <laughs> your background and your experience and your extensive experience in the region, Hoyt. The, the question I, I think I had in relation to this is, are we witnessing some sort of a balancing loop effect that seems to be pushing the governance structures or infrastructure in these countries back to an earlier point of equilibrium? Thank you, Philippe. Um, 
that's almost a philosophical question um, about whether there is a kind of a natural balance point or equilibrium for states or with respect to the rule of law. And I would, I would tend to say, and I would answer your question by saying that no, I don't believe there is um, for any of these countries um, a natural set point um, for rule of law. What I would say instead is that this is more about uh, the political um, context, the political framework in which governments are pursuing their policies, um, their approach to rule of law. And to take a couple of the countries that um, Alex pointed out as the red arrows on uh, page 18 of the, the summary, um, Poland and Hungary. I think uh, most of the people in the room will remember, or some of you from in the room will remember back in the 90s when Poland and Hungary were actually uh, held up as models for uh, democratic uh, reforms and rule of law um, reforms because uh, they were emerging from, from um, a darker period, but also because there were uh, factors such as the European Union and NATO that were holding accountable, there's that word um, that several have already mentioned today, there was accountability um, for countries that wanted to join NATO and the European Union to meet certain standards. Uh, and the citizens of the countries, of course, were very much um, motivated to um, have their governments meet those standards. And so the governments then did everything possible, um, sometimes superhumanly possible, to, to, um, to pass laws and to adopt policies and to make sacrifices in order to maintain a level that the Europeans and the North Americans um, uh, believed were adequate uh, for integration into uh, the transatlantic institutions. Now, you fast forward to um, two or three decades later, uh, these countries are already in those institutions. They're all already very prosperous, and they're in a very different place. Um, and I would argue, and, and we can maybe get into this later, that the constraints, the external constraints that were present, um, the checks and balances, if you will, from outside the country that were in um, place uh, in the 90s um, have largely um, dissipated, or they have not been applied as rigorously as they had been in the 90s. So. Poland uh, challenging the European Union, Hungary challenging the European Union in ways that were unthinkable to a lot of uh, people who in the 90s were um, trying very hard to help Hungary and Poland uh, to meet the standards. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't ways to adjust, but I think Hungary and Poland have found ways, as Betsy pointed out, to, to use existing rules. Um, Hungary uh, found a way uh, since 2010 when Viktor Orban was uh, uh, elected. Uh, he's now had, I think, since then, three successive uh, elections resulting in a supermajority, he's changed the laws. He's been able to uh, stack his judiciary, and he's been able to um, uh, legally change media freedom and uh, judicial freedom in a way that um, centralizes power, allows him to continue his model, um, which is consistent with Hungarian law. So he's not really violating the rule of law in the strict sense. Um, so just a quick word on Serbia and, uh, and um, Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, also red arrows, I think, on the, the screen that Alex pointed out. Um, they're very different. They're, they're the, these are countries that are aspiring to join these institutions. Um, but I would say the same kind of effect is in place, that uh, while uh, when the international community, including the United States uh, and Europe um, and Canada, have paid a lot of attention to Bosnia-Herzegovina. There has been a, 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 um, 
better uh, performance, I would say, in the reform area, um, including rule of law. Um, in the mid-90s, for example, um, there was a great deal of attention, including with the Dayton, Dayton Accords, in trying to help Bosnia-Herzegovina um, reform, find a system that would allow it to exist as a state. Um, a lot of people would say that now, 20 years later, that level of attention um, from Europe, the United States, has diminished um, to the point where there's not the kind of positive, um, or in some cases perhaps negative reinforcement needed to help countries uh, like Bosnia-Herzegovina stay the, stay the course. And just lastly, a word on, on Serbia, I think, um, a country that is uh, further along the accession process for European Union integration, um, there is still a, um, a clash of, uh, of uh, strategic directions. On one hand, um, the country wants to move towards the EU. On the other hand, there's a lot of, um, lot of interest in maintaining ties with Russia. And that probably gets to another question. But the end result is that there is not a clear message from the outside to the Serbian government about what it needs to do in order to um, become a um, full contributing and uh, happy member of the family democracies in, in Europe, um, whether it's European Union or simply integrating with markets. Uh, so when there is not sufficient encouragement, when there is mixed messages perhaps, uh, one could say, uh, there is a tendency for governments perhaps to, to lose sight of uh, rule of law as we would define it. You just mentioned Russia, and I think that's a perfect segue to the other question I wanted to ask you very quickly. To what extent does this, this decline in government accountability and constraints on government powers and a rise in authoritarianism, to what extent does that create opportunities for authoritarian states like Russia and to a certain extent China, um, based on your experience and what you've observed? I think there are real vulnerabilities in, uh, in Europe um, not only in Europe, of course, uh, to uh, exploitation by um, countries, uh, Russia, China, perhaps others, uh, to exploit uh, the system, to exploit uh, vulnerable countries in ways that are detrimental to the interests of uh, the United States and its allies and, uh, and other European countries. Um, an example is uh, that uh, when states have uh, weak institutions, whether it's judicial or law enforcement, or simple, uh, or judicial, um, and there is a lot of corruption as a result of that. Uh, governments become vulnerable to um, uh, bribery, to um, economic pressure uh, that uh, might, for example, lead them away from the European Union or NATO, or might lead them to support policies and initiatives uh, from Russia or China that are not uh, consistent with what um, we in the West would like to see happen. I think there's also um, a danger that uh, the countries themselves will be held back. Um, we see in Bosnia-Herzegovina, which is very divided, um, partly because um, Russia does not want to see Bosnia-Herzegovina move closer to either the European Union or NATO, particularly NATO. And therefore, the country, um, through the Republic of Srpska, uh, receives a certain level of attention from Russia um, that makes it much more difficult for the country to move ahead as a, as a united, uh, united country. In Serbia, the same same thing, um, and perhaps on a you know positive side of that question is, if by strengthening rule of law, if by strengthening internal institutions um, in the Balkans, for example, can countries become more uh, 
uh, inoculated, uh, more resilient against uh, this kind of interference from outside? And I think the answer is yes. And an example I would use would be Macedonia, or the Republic of North Macedonia, um, as of a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is a country that was very much um, in jeopardy, uh, whose fate was very much uh, unclear, only a little over a year, two years ago. Um, but by, I think, concerted effort by its friends, its allies in Europe, um, North America, and others, it was able to make some improvements. It was able to have credible elections. It was able to forge a government, a multi-ethnic government, um, that has made some improvements, has a long ways to go, but has made improvements in rule of law. And it is now, I would say, um, in a much better position uh, to resist the, um, the advances, um, the uh, mischief from, from outside regimes. Thanks, Hoyt. I wanted to ask then a, a quick question to, to Maria, and I know that we're colleagues and we talk about these things very often, but one of the questions that, that I had um, pertains to some of the countries that we see uh, in, in those reports. A lot of those countries have witnessed or have been the theater of um, nonviolent demonstrations or citizens-based movements that have forced or dismantled authoritarian structures of governance. And we can think of Poland, for example, that brought Poland out of the communist space. Uh, Serbia, to a certain extent, as well, where uh, Slobodan Milosevic was forced to resign. Um, so to what extent, Maria, are we witnessing or are we witnessing the dictators or the authoritarian learning curve can we say that authoritarian regimes have become better, have learned, and they are now better at uh, stifling or addressing the types of challenges that nonviolent action or nonviolent <coughs> movements can pose to them? Thanks, Philippe. That's a great question. And congrats, by the way, to WJP for the release of the rule of law index. That's a um, congratulations. Um, in terms of the dictator's learning curve, I think you're absolutely right to note that two, especially hungry Poland, countries that underwent massive people power campaigns in the late 80s, early 90s, mass participations to challenge communist tyranny at the time were successful in the sense that they overturned the communist regimes and they were thought to be consolidated democracies. Um, and they have since um, backslid, if you will. Um, we know empirically that these types of nonviolent movements, people power campaigns, civil resistance movements involving tactics like boycotts, strikes, civil disobedience, protest demonstrations and the like, have been very strongly correlated with democratization. So about eight different independent studies, Freedom House, um, uh, researcher Jonathan Pinckney, others have done studies that have found that kind of the skills involved in organizing mass nonviolent movements, the negotiations involved, the coalition building, the organizing involved, tends to be conducive to democratic consolidation. And so Poland and Hungary were kind of thought to be on that successful trajectory. I think what we have seen is that governments have begun to realize that organized citizenries um, and you know, populations that are capable of engaging in organized campaigns and movements are the greatest threat to their grip on power and a gr uh, grip on abusive power. So I think we've been seeing some authoritarian adaptation um, over the years. One uh, data note is that uh, my colleague Erica Chenoweth and I have been collecting data on major nonviolent and violent campaigns um, over the decades. And we've found recently that starting in the 2010s period, 
the overall effectiveness of nonviolent campaigns has dipped to a level that we have not seen since the 1950s. Um, so even though the nonviolent campaigns are still successful, we're seeing a decline. Um, and we think that that has to do a lot with the fact that regimes are learning, they're adapting, they're developing kind of new methods, techniques. Um, and you know, the dictator's handbook, um, which has been translated into multiple languages by now and adapted to local context has a few commonalities. I mean, there, there are some classic techniques that, that dictatorships will use. They will declare all forms of domestic dissent, hooligans, terrorists, traitors, and the like. They will blame dissent on foreigners outside, um, outside powers. They will fundamentally attack their media. Now, I would say kind of a new development, even though disinformation has always been part of the, dict the dictator's arsenal, but the investment in, the regime's investment in disinformation, cyber surveillance, cyber repression, I think is, you know, increased significantly. And I think it's kind of strengthened um, their, their pushback. And, you know, it's not only repression. Um, regimes uh, are not only attacking activists, going after institutions, constitutions, they also use incentives. They use forms of co-optation, paying off the inner entourage, having cosmetic elections, or I think Chris Walker referred to them as zombie elections, something like this. So giving the facade um, of engaging in democratic um, reforms and, and improvements, but at the end of the day, it's about you know, managing and controlling uh, domestic dissent. So, and I, and I think one maybe difference from uh, previous eras is that these regimes literally are getting together and swapping notes. So there are four that exist where technology is being discussed. You know, um, Betsy may have mentioned how, for example, NGO laws are being cut and pasted from one country to the next. So there's a lot of learning that's going on, um, you know, between and, and amongst these regimes. And, and I think it's a very troubling trend overall, the authoritarian resurgence, especially for the work that we do here at USIP on peace building, because um, decline in the rule of law is just fundamentally associated with drivers of violence violence and violent extremism, so I think it's a really grave threat. Which, and then maybe, th th this is very interesting, maybe we can then move on to Betsy and ask Betsy, because in the authoritarian toolkit, or the dictator's toolkit, I heard several mentions of the law or legal means. Uh, so the law seems to be at the very heart of this toolkit. And so Betsy, from your, from your perspective, how, how, how is the law being used? Uh, to undermine uh, the rule of law, which you alluded to uh, earlier on. Uh, right, so um, lots of different ways, and it varies country to country, but there are some common patterns that we see. Um, usually first, uh, the, if, if possible, there will be uh, a constitutional reform, uh, a rewriting of the Constitution in ways that uh, erode the, the checks on government authority, uh, that erode uh, judicial independence, um, uh, perhaps that manipulate the electoral process in ways that will guarantee uh, a, a majority in the, in the legislature um, for the ruling party. That's uh, kind of step one. Uh, then we see attacks on, on civil society and the media through the law. Uh, so regulation of the media, licensing of the media is a common uh, move um, that is, has, has this patina of legality um, but is undermining the rule of law. Um, certainly, re uh, regulation of NGOs is a common uh, feature. Uh, and then we see manipulation of criminal law. Uh, so prosecutions, uh, selective prosecutions under the guise of anti-corruption or anti-terrorism. Uh, 
is a, a very common move and, and has the, both, both a, it's a legal move and it's also a political move and it demonizes oppositions in ways that uh, can be convincing to, to the public. So those are the, those are the patterns that we see and, and I think an important response is to be very clear about what the rule of law is. And, and uh, Hoyt even fell prey to this um, um, in talking about, about Hungary and describing, yes, uh, Hungary has um, pursued some of the concentration of power there through laws and is um, formally abiding by laws, but this is not abiding by the rule of law. And there's a distinction of between rule um, by law and rule of law. And what we see in, in, in Hungary increasingly is rule by law, but this is not rule of law. And so that's one of the things that we at WJP are really preoccupied with is, is clarifying the definition of the rule of law, what it means, and through this index, uh, hopefully shedding some light on where it is. So Maria, what, what does this mean for nonviolent uh, strategy? Um, what does nonviolence <coughs> 2.0 um, looks like, you know, if the dictators and the authoritarians could learn, um, do we see some learning on the part of uh, the nonviolent uh, action movements, and what should it look like um, as we look ahead? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, these are, when it comes to the relationship between these types of regimes or even backsliding democracies and their citizenries, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game in terms of, you know, um, one will innovate, um, you know, advance, the other will learn, adapt their strategies and tactics, and it's really uh, a question of who innovates, adapts, strategizes, organizes most effectively in terms of um, who prevails. But I think, you know, we tend to see people power, uh, people power come in waves, whether it was anti-colonial movements in the 60s, kind of the anti-communist movements in the 80s, early 90s, color revolutions in the 2000s, most recently Arab Springs. So there's often like a learning and a spillover effect that happens um, with these movements. So I think there's always the potential that, you know, folks would learn from what happened in Armenia, for example, the Velvet Revolution. You never know what is going to happen. So I think, you know, we are seeing um, groups that are tactically innovating. They're using different uh, technologies and the like. But one thing that I think will really make the difference is, you know, the investment by activists, by movements in organizing. And one of the reasons I think in addition to authoritarian learning that we may be seeing a decline in the overall effectiveness of nonviolent campaigns is that there's been really a big focus on social media, big mobilization, protests, so fast movement, fast action. And there's a huge power and value to that, but what you're missing is kind of the fundamentals of organizing and kind of the one-on-one -on -one and developing capacity, resilience and the like to be able to deal with all of these tools uh, that are in the authoritarian's toolkit that are you know, going after these movements. So I think really kind of the investment in, in these types of strategies and tactics is important. And the thing about nonviolent resistance always that, um, that I remind myself is that you know, people, people are never kind of captive to their fates. People have agency in these places and nonviolent movements have historically emerged and succeeded in places where no one would have thought that was possible. And so I do think notwithstanding the authoritarian resurgence and all of these kind of decline in factors that it is possible for the citizenries and kind of the, the grassroots actors, the movements to learn, adapt, learn from each other and, and respond effectively.
I wanted then to move on maybe to Hoyt, and because I picked up on what you were saying, Hoyt, um, beforehand, the issue of leverage, and that for a certain period of time in certain areas, <coughs> there was leverage on the part of the you know, various external actors, be it people in Brussels, people in Washington, uh, be it a peace process or an integration process to NATO or to the European Union. Now that most of this, at least if we look at some of the countries that were highlighted in Eastern Europe, <coughs> now that most of this is not entirely gone, but mostly behind us, um, is there leverage? Is there still, are there still things that external actors, people who are focusing <coughs> on strategies and resources and how to diplomatically or programmatically uh, handle the trends that have been highlighted, uh, what are the levers? What, what can be done in that sense for external actors? So first, I stand corrected on terminology and uh, <laughs> would just say that um, the rule of law or rule by law um, is largely um, possible um, or protected um, as a function of how the international community is willing to support it. I fully agree with Maria's point about people power, and I think it is... is it is at least as important that the people um, stand up and are heard and insist on rule of law and democratic governance. In some cases, it's, it's more possible than others. In Central Europe, since we're talking about Europe, there's, I think, a good example in Romania, um, which is higher up in the ranking. It still has its issues. Um, but one of the things that's been very pronounced in, in Romania over the last 10 years has been on occasion when the government has tried to do something shady, um, 2015 or 2017, people have come out. Uh, I think it was in 2015 when uh, the uh, hundreds of thousands of Romanians were protesting against perceived corruption and the government fell. In 2017, the government of Romania tried to pass some legislation that would essentially decriminalize various forms of corruption. And the government was faced with hundreds of thousands of Romanians um, all over the country protesting and the government had to back down. Now, that it wasn't a permanent solution, um, because um, governments in strong positions, such as in Hungary um, or Poland, uh, answer to not only their own citizens, but to external factors. So to come back to your question of leverage, is there leverage? And there is. I think the, the fortunate answer is that there, there are forms of leverage over countries that belong to alliances or international organizations in which that country, those countries, want to remain members. So we mentioned the EU and NATO as uh, motivating factors in getting countries to meet certain standards. These countries have mechanisms, formal or informal. In the case of the EU, there is something uh, called Article 7, uh, which is in the EU treaty, which allows discipline of countries that are not meeting standards. And the EU has invoked our Article 7, or the European Parliament has invoked Article 7 against Hungary and Poland in uh, 2018 and 2017. Um, and this is potentially a way for leverage to be brought against um, authoritarian regimes or authoritarian tendencies. Now, it hasn't been successful, um, partly successful in the case of Poland, in which Poland did have to, the government had to back off of um, some forced um, resignations by judges or uh, justices on the Supreme Court who were forced to resign um, before they wanted to resign. Um, those judges have been reinstated, largely because of EU pressure. Uh, but we should remember that Poland, um, uh, since 2015, October 2015, when the, 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 the Law and Justice Party came to power, was able to centralize power 
um, and to largely weaken the constitutional court in Poland by passing legislation, which was arguably against um, the Constitution of Poland, as decided by the Constitutional Tribunal. So there has to be some external factor, and the EU, I think, has made efforts to rein in some of its members, Hungary and Poland, but it needs to continue. And the fact that um, there can be vetoes, Poland can veto action uh, taken by the EU or attempted by the EU against Hungary and vice versa for Hungary and Poland. Um, but this is a tool that exists and needs to be used if um, European, Union, European Union members are going to be held to account, and that's a key word that Mr. Hubbard mentioned at the beginning, it's accountability. Now, with countries like Serbia and Bosnia-Herzegovina, which are not in the EU, they're not in NATO, um, but they want to be there, I would argue that the international community, um, beginning with the European Union, uh, North America, can, um, if not distracted, if not uh, focused elsewhere, um, can bring the necessary encouragement uh, to these countries to um, help them make the reforms and stay the course uh, that are not only in these countries' interests, but, but ours. So it's not so much that leverage doesn't exist, I would say the leverage is not being used, and it's never popular, I think, uh, uh, certainly not in the countries themselves, for an outside force to come in and say, this is what you need to do, and you're going to do it, otherwise you're not going to be able to join the club. Um, but if it is important, and for the reasons you referred to earlier, Philippe, about the possibility of outside, whether it's Russia or China, countries coming in to exploit the defects in the state of rule of law or democracy, then it should be in all of our interests. Um, that kind of um, interest needs to be matched by action uh, to maintain or reestablish the rule of, rule of law. Thanks, Hoyt. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to end um, the panel discussions with a question to Betsy. Um, so this has been a particularly gloomy <laughs> Uh, landscape that we've been um, talking about. So, so let's try to questions. Let's try. Let's <laughs> let's try to focus on the on some of the bright spots. Uh, so, from your standpoint, Betsy, what are the bright spots as we as we're looking forward? Uh, and um, so, we'd like to have at least an example of a bright spot before we move into the the question and answers uh, session. Thank you. I'm I'm a glass half full kind of gal, so I appreciate this uh, this uh, question. Um, so uh, overall, of course, the trends are negative, but there are some, some positive things to, to cling to in this report. Um, one, the one factor that is improving um, on average uh, globally is uh, the factor that measures the absence of corruption. So I think that's uh, pretty interesting and, and encouraging. It could be that that factor is picking up some of the misuse of anti-corruption that I described earlier when an autocrat uses anti-corruption laws to punish his or her opponents. But, but I think um, there's no doubt that some of it is, in fact, progress on, on corruption. And uh, why is that? I think it's uh, several different factors uh, there contributing. One is we have an increasingly strong global norm uh, against corruption. It's uh, now uh, firmly codified in the UN Convention Against Corruption and regional uh, corruption conventions and national laws. Um, so that norm is strong. It is increasingly enforced um, by national uh, uh, governments, um, by international bodies, the World Bank's debarment and, and sanctions uh, effort. 
um, and, and the like. And that, that enforcement is reinforced by a pretty powerful civil society people power uh, movement on corruption that is getting traction. Um, we also see, I think, benefits from technology in this area, which are, is increasingly eliminating opportunities for corruption and making it easier to detect corruption. So there, there are several different um, uh, threads there, but generally helping us head in the right direction. And maybe there are some lessons to be gleaned from that for other areas of rule of law. So that's a positive. Um, a second positive in the report is a regional one, and that is looking at Africa. So in last year's report, uh, the 2018 uh, Rule of Law Index, we uh, reported that Africa was the region where there was the most progress um, across the countries where we were measuring. Um, that progress has slowed this year in the 2019 report. Um, basically, we see a more or less a steady state. Um, most of the countries that we measured, both in 2018 and 2019, stayed the same. Two improved, one declined. But net um, some, some progress, and particularly when you juxtapose that against global trends of, of degradation in rule of law, Africa is doing relatively well, um, trend-wise. Um, the rule of law is still very poor in Africa, so there's a lot um, of room to progress, but I think there is hope there that we should cling to. And finally, um, I just point that the, the big movers, the big positive movers in the report tend to be countries I think almost all of them are countries that have experienced recently uh, a transition in government. Um, so we see this in Zimbabwe, Malaysia, um, Ethiopia, Uzbekistan. These are countries that are trending positively in this year's report, and they've all experienced a transition. Now, a peaceful transition in, in government is itself a very positive sign for rule of law. It also often comes with promises of reform, and, uh, and various moves that raise expectations in society. And that's what we're picking up in our surveys and, uh, and what's showing up in the index. And I think what's important is to seize that opportunity because it is often a very short window of opportunity uh, following one of those transitions. And so um, as we uh, focus on some of the very negative trends in this report, I'd also point um, to those countries of real opportunity and that we seize those opportunities. Thank you, thank you. Um, great, so I think it is now time to move to questions from the audience. I will ask Alex to come and join us, rejoin the stage uh, to address the specific data uh, questions that might arise from the audience. Uh, a few quick rules for questions. Um, if you could identify yourself uh, before the question, there will be microphones circulating, and then ask a quick question that, uh, and make sure that it uh, ends with a question mark. Uh, now, uh, so whoever wants the microphone, you can raise your hand, and then the microphone will get to you. So I have someone here in the second row, or we'll start here in the back, and then we'll move uh, up front. Me? Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Marcelo de Jesus. I'm Argentine. I'm living in the U.S. I was a little bit surprised when Ms. Anderson said that corruption was improving. I would like to know if the measurement for this improvement is because laws are, are conventions are being ratified or because there's another objective index that tell you, tells you that we are improving that respect. Um, 
The, the change in the index is mainly due to changes in, in perception and experiences. So we include uh, questions about victimization and questions about experiences. In reality, it's very difficult actually to, to measure corruption well. So uh, sometimes what we see is changes in perceptions just on how people perceive that things are happening, and particularly for grant corruption, it's extremely challenging to measure grant corruption. Uh, sometimes people learn about this from the scandals that they, that they listen uh, just in the media. Uh, but, then, but, but that's how, how, we, how we measure it. It's not about the, the uh, conventions that they have been ratified uh, or so. I mean, they may have an impact, of course, on just the perceptions of the public or not. I mean, just it's sometimes they may not necessarily have, have an impact. Thank you. Then um, here's second row. Um, this Thank you. I'm uh, Jim Michael, and uh, I'm with CSIS and also an independent consultant. First of all, I want to say congratulations again. <laughs> this is just a tremendous service, I think, that you provide to the whole community. Um, the question I have, uh, and I think it's for Alejandro, is how do you deal with midterm changes that occur in the year that you're measuring? Uh, there are events, I noticed one of the countries, for example, where you show improvement is, is Guatemala. And you know what, <laughs> what has happened in Guatemala recently. And so I wonder how do you, do, you have to take a snapshot, but then sometimes things change within the year. And I wonder how do you deal with those uh, uh, late changes in, uh, in the data? It, it is a challenge, as, as you point out, because the way that we deal with this is as follows. So, there are certain things that we cannot avoid. So we have to collect the data at a certain period of time, and we have to be very transparent about the time period for which the data is referring to. We usually, and the staff actually takes a lot of stress because we try to make it as close as possible to the time that we're publishing the, the report. Uh, just as a result, we have very little time to actually analyze the, the data. Uh, but but the, the issue is, is mainly just to be transparent about the time. So we always have issues like the one that you're mentioning this year for Guatemala, in which one or two countries, there are situations that suddenly change so that it's not necessarily accurate, so we're just uh, published just exactly the time in which we collected the data. And we hope that those changes are actually just reflected in, in the next year. I mean, just that's part of the, the, the reason also just to collect the data over time. Finger on that. Um, uh, I, I've been quite preoccupied with the Guatemala case in the study, and and um, and I think it actually it it makes the point I was making there at the end about the, the short window of time there is following a, a transition yeah. in government uh, uh, to seize the opportunity for rule of law change. I think that's what we're seeing in Guatemala. The data is picking up uh, optimism yeah. that people had following a transition in government there, and lots of promises that were made and um, that we are not seeing that uh, realized will probably show up next year. Then I saw a question here uh, to the right, and then we have another question, third row there to the left afterwards, and then also second row. Uh, ben Juvelier with the American Society of International Law. Uh, my question is about causation, essentially. Um, to what extent do your surveys pick up on why people think the rule of law is improving? And in what way can activists, nonprofits, government officials in countries that need to improve use this information to advocate for rule of law improvement? 
I think, I mean, it's, the surveys do not necessarily capture causation. So they, they are a snapshot of how people perceive different manifestations of the rule of law. Not necessarily, I mean, we don't ask necessarily about the rule of law, but different manifestations of the rule of law. So as per se, they don't necessarily show the causes, the root causes. I mean, that's something that, that obviously more analysis is needed to, to figure out that. Uh, on how this is uh, used, I think the advantage of an exercise like this is that it provides a reference point. First, a comparative reference point uh, with other countries. Sometimes we know that in a particular country there may be just issues of corruption or impunity. But when we actually see it compared to other countries, sometimes we're able to see that the situation is much worse than we, that we knew. So uh, the comparative as aspect is important. And more importantly, it's a, it's a thermometer. It's that tracks, obviously, the changes over time to see whether there is progress. And by doing it in a standardized ways across a large number of countries, we're able to see these trends that we have been talking about. So just it's something that we see in the news, for example, that we perhaps feel that there is maybe a rise in authoritarianism around the world. But is it really the case? Can we just identify which countries are experiencing it and by which reasons? And this data set actually allows us to go deeper into, into these trends. Obviously, for particular countries, we will need to do a much more in-depth analysis, just take into account context and so on. I mean, this is simply a, a snapshot, just a 10,000 feet picture of the, of the situation. But the, the main strength is, again, the comparative uh, perspective and the trend over time. Betsy, do you want to add to this? Uh, I was actually going to ask Maria uh, <laughs> if she had perspective uh, and experience of seeing uh, citizen movements use data. Yeah, well, I mean, I would say in general, corruption tends to be a galvanizer. Um, so citizens latch on to, and it's not only scandals, although scandals can just raise awareness very quickly and bring people out, but you know, I'm thinking about Burkina Faso, I'm thinking about Senegal, I'm thinking about the Gambia, I'm thinking about Armenia most recently, that, you know, people feel angry when it's framed as this is adversely affecting your daily lives. This is theft. This is stealing from the people funds that otherwise would be going to education, health, all these kind of things. And I know activists have kind of the data itself can be helpful, but I think the contextualization of the data so that it reflects kind of lived experiences is really, really important because corruption can sound like an abstract thing, kind of like human rights. But until you bring it to the level of what people are experiencing in their daily lives, paying bribes, not being able to access medicine, healthcare, those are things that matter to people. And I think that the successful movements are able to frame in that way in order to kind of attract uh, participation. Maybe connecting to, to Hoyt's point about external pressure as well, uh, increasingly we're seeing this data used by international organizations and, and international investors to inform their decision making. And so highlighting that um, can be quite motivating. Um, the OECD, for example, is going to use um, the index data to inform decisions about um, uh, states being allowed to join that organization. Um, and, and that can get attention in ways that can be uh, quite impactful. Great. Then I have a question here in third row. Um, and then we'll move on to the second row after. Hi. Emily Ashby with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Rule of Law Coalition. Um, I think the private sector is sometimes a relatively untapped partner in this fight. And I want to see what the opportunities you see for the private sector concretely contributing towards uh, uh, this struggle, this conversation. 
Um, well, I'll start, and then I'm interested in the thoughts of others. Um, so uh, several different ways in which we work with the private sector. Um, one is actually on the data collection. So uh, private sector lawyers are um, among the experts who respond to our expert survey that, it, that informs the data collection. So that's uh, really important. Um, we've also had some interesting conversations with private sector actors about the questions that they would like to see us ask um, in, in the survey that um, would, inf would inform their decision making. Um, questions, for example, about uh, data security in countries is something that uh, companies are increasingly interested in, and uh, we might, in, through the data collection, be able to inform that, um, that analysis. Um, I also think that, uh, that to the extent that, that uh, uh, companies can explicitly, or th maybe through bodies like the Chamber of Commerce, um, highlight um, this kind of information is relevant uh, to their decision making. It it will significantly increase the leverage um, that activists and others have um, in trying to raise awareness of these issues. So welcome that partnership. Boyd, Maria, would you like to point out the role of the private sector as well? Are there any comments, Boyd? Sure. I think um, great question, and I think there is a role for businesses. It largely depends on the business's willingness um, and their own code, um, how they see the importance of rule of law in the countries in which they may be already investing or operating. But I completely agree with Betsy that um, governments often listen to businesses much more uh, seriously, uh, attentively than they do to governments, um, especially if it involves um, a, a question of whether the, the business is willing to invest or to continue operating in a country um, if there is um, a high degree of corruption or whether a business is willing to accept bribes. Um, there are a lot of anecdotal uh, stories about how some countries' businesses are willing to take bribes. Um, some are not. Um, in uh, a lot of countries, uh, if, uh, as you know from the American Chamber, if you are a corporate uh, officer and you accept a bribe or you allow your people to accept a bribe, you may go to jail. Um, to the extent more businesses um, around the world, American and otherwise, are willing to apply that same standard um, and on their operations in foreign countries in which rule of law may be or, or not a, a question, um, we can be more effective. Um, it's amplifying the voice of those who are trying to strengthen rule of law. I would just say, yeah, I think the private sector is a huge source of leverage. I think, um, you know, a resource for you, a colleague of ours uh, at USIP, Shaska Byerly, has written a book called Curtailing Corruption, People Power for Justice and Accountability. In a number of the cases, she looks at individual case studies, and I recall at least three or four of them involve how movements themselves engage the private sector, especially small, medium enterprises, to kind of put pressure on the governments, um, specifically focused on corruption. And, you know, you think to some of the classic people power campaigns, Philippines and the like against Marcos, when the business sector got involved in really applying pressure on the governments, that was a game changer. So I think it's a key, uh, a key group. <clears throat> Thank you. Then another question I have, the second row, the lady here in the second row. I'm sorry I made you wait. Hello. Um, my name is Jingjing Zhang. I'm a China-trained lawyer. I'm an environmental litigator in China. And uh, now I'm leading an environmental law clinic and the University of Maryland Law School. I'm working on to ensure Chinese company comply with laws when they are op 
operating or investing in Latin America and Africa. So my question is, if it's possible to evaluate the major authoritarian regimes, their influence on the rule of law regionally or globally, for example, the Russia in Europe and China in Africa? It's certainly possible to analyze that. That's not something that we're looking at um, in this index. Um, it may be something that colleagues at USIP analyze um, or the way or, or other think tanks are looking at um, those, those uh, international uh, forces that are either strengthening or undermining the rule of law. So we clearly have an increased focus at USIP on the role of um, great power dynamics and the impact of, of uh, great power dynamics on the potential for violent conflict. We have now an increased on looking at <laughs> an increased focus on the role of China, uh, not only as, uh, uh, as, as a, an emerging power that can contribute to conflict, but that can also help in managing and addressing certain conflict potential. And then we are uh, also considering doing the same with Russia as well. Uh, so we do at USIP now consider uh, great power dynamics to be a, 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 a core ingredient of our thinking on, on violent conflict and, and, and the dynamics around the world. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> other questions? I see people here on the left. I, I want to make sure that I'm equitable between different sides here. So why don't we move to the right, uh, fourth row? And then I promise we'll go back to the left side of the room. Yeah. Thank you so much. Joanne Richardson with the National Center for State Courts. And just wanted to say that I appreciate um, the comments on um, the Balkans. I worked in the Balkans in uh, early 2000 and then in 2007. I was in uh, Bosnia and Kosovo. So the, the conflict um, uh, worked on the conflict post-Dayton and so on. My question is specifically related to Haiti, which um, I don't believe it's included. And I was just wondering if you have any comments, this is a, a question to any member of the panel, if you have any thoughts on Haiti, and if there are other countries um, like Haiti that seem to be, you know, have these, you know, moments of crisis um, every couple of years, if there are countries that you're looking at, if they're uh, considered separately, if you're looking at different types of measurements for them, and how do you handle countries like this? So, um, I mean, can you lower, so I can tell you about the reasons, I mean, just we, we unfortunately haven't included Haiti just in, in the surveys. Um, it is one that we actually would like to, to include. When we actually thought about including them, it was actually very difficult to conduct surveys over there. So uh, that is uh, uh, one of the main reasons why, why we didn't include it, and I mean, but obviously just the intention is there. Uh, so when you mention about just, can you elaborate a little bit about just the, uh, when referring to uh, the situation in Haiti, just and whether there are other countries, just can you can you elaborate a little bit? You're not looking, you're not, um, if there are countries that you're not evaluating at all. Um, obviously, and I'm asking because I think what the service that you provide to the do donor community is so important. And I'm just wondering if there are opportunities um, for you to take us, you know, whether you look at them uh, under a different type of um, index or a different type of evaluation, 
um, for all of us who are, you know, looking to Haiti for hoping for some kind of improvement and and, and evaluation and analysis to find out what's right. really going on there. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, in the ideally, we'll like to cover all the countries in the world. So that's the <laughs> that's the goal. Obviously, it is uh, challenging. Probably just the main challenge that we before the challenges, the way that we select countries just on where to expand, uh, and this was traditionally how we have been doing it, is just simply going first by the largest countries, just so simply to spread them out across the different regions, different levels of socioeconomic development and so on. Uh, and then just once we had a global coverage, just trying to, to expand to the countries that we haven't included. Just uh, having said that, the probably the main challenge that we face is, is funding for just uh, reaching out to uh, to all the countries. Uh, once we uh, cover a country, just as I mentioned, just we do a poll, so and we try to do polls uh, regularly to update the uh, scores, and that actually just is, uh, involves costs. In some cases, uh, the constraints are not necessarily only because of the cost, but more about methodological constraints of conducting surveys in, in the country, just such, uh, I mean, it's impossible, for example, to conduct surveys in North Korea today or in Cuba or because the countries are closed or uh, in conflict zones such as Syria, for example. So those, there are constraints. Uh, there are countries that are not as close as, as, as those, but it still imposes constraints in, in terms of, of conducting these type of exercises because people may be afraid about answering particular topics and so on. Uh, there are techniques that we try to use to accommodate uh, for that, but then, but the overall, uh, the, the, the broader question, the broader answer is that obviously we would like to include, I mean, just in the plans is to include actually Haiti. We have included most of the Caribbean. Actually, Haiti is the only country that is not, that is not included. Moving to the left side of the room, we have time probably for one or two questions left. So uh, I think at the back, um, uh, yes, I think so. Yeah. And I apologize for neglecting the back as well. And then we'll move then. So they're still further back, so yeah. you need to get to them. Uh, Lynn Hammergren, I just have a question about leverage. Lots, you talked about leverage and about the efficacy of, of outside pressure. But having worked also in the Balkans and seeing the frustration of the EU, which just let some people into the club who maybe they didn't think they, they should, the question is, for something like corruption or rule of law, once you know there's a problem, what can outsiders do? What can they recommend? I think we now know that uh, ethics codes aren't going to do any good, a national anti-corruption program isn't going to do any good, and I find that donors and also the European Commission are frustrated just in terms of what do we recommend? We recommend something, we don't get the results. Mike, do you want to have a thing? And maybe bet, bet, and many people I'm sure are interested in that question, yeah. So, yeah. so first I'd say there, there are multi-layers of this, this, um, this answer, but um, there are standards that exist. There are rules that exist already. Um, so I think the answer in many of the countries that we've t talked about so far, um, with the possible exception of Haiti, uh, a possible exception of Haiti, there, there's an existing code. So we're not having to re reinvent the wheel. What we need is the accountability and the enforcement, as it were, both from inside, um, I think accountability to people, the voters, first of all, but what the external factors can do is hold these governments accountable to their commitments to the institutions, whether it's a NATO alliance or it's a European Union. Um, it is a responsibility of the institutions to hold their members accountable, and when they fail to do that, um, 
not only do bad things tend to happen, um, but the governments, whether it's authoritarian or otherwise, are able to get away with um, their either populist or other anti-rule of law agenda. So that's one layer. This, uh, uh, and it, it's things like Article 7, or it's simply the NATO North Atlantic Council sitting around the table saying, you know, we're worried about uh, um, a growing Russian influence within our, our ranks. Um, one layer down, I think there, there's also a need for the kind of reporting, the kind of analysis done by um, the World Justice Project or Transparency International. It's bringing to light the violations, the, the shortcomings in rule of law um, of democratic standards, because um, especially in countries in which the media, independent media, have been um, repressed or silenced or um, bought by the populist authoritarian regime, people don't know what's going on. And that means people outside as well probably don't know what's going on. So bringing to light. Um, and third, I think helping institute, Maria should speak to this really, but I think there's a lot of room for helping civil society, whether it's NGO, NGOs or independent media. Um, I want to put a pitch in for prosecutors because one of the bright spots, if you want to talk br about bright spots in the last several years is uh, certainly in the Balkans, we see that there are empowered and courageous um, prosecutors, um, I'd say and certainly in Macedonia, in Romania until recently when she was fired, uh, up until the point she was fired, um, uh, a prosecutor named uh, Koveshi was very effective at prosecuting senior government officials. Um, so we need to find a way to help prosecutors, help judiciaries and media um, do their job so they can uh, help uh, fight back. Yeah, I, I would just add to that that I think there tends to be a lot of external donor focus on the, the institution building, as there rightly should be. So a lot on the supply side, but the demand side also is what really matters. And what you when you generate pressure, that involves citizens organizing, you know, engaging in advocacy, movement building, and the like. And so I think that investment um, and focus is as important as, you know, because if you're just pouring money into institutions that are comprised of individuals who have no incentive whatsoever to change their behavior or the like, it's kind of throwing money away in many cases. So I think there's the focus on the institutions, the anti-corruption mechanisms, but also the realization that it's the citizenry and the bottom-up pressure that's going to you know, help bring about real and sustained change. And we've seen, Maria, examples recently, I think, in Central America of nonviolent action movements coming to the defense of certain institutions right. uh, who were responsible to tackle corruption. So, so these things can, can speak to one another. Yeah. Yeah? Um, one last question. I owe one last question to the person in the fourth row, uh, whom I denied uh, earlier on. So one last question. Hi, my name is Rose Lindgren, and I'm at the State Department in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. Um, I think this might go to Maria and to Alejandro. I would like to know a little bit more. In Mexico, there's a recent state-by-state -state index, and I just think the citizen movements tend to come from very the concrete real-life action that people understand in their daily lives, which tends to be municipal or state level. And I just wondered what opportunities there are to continue to delve a little bit deeper into countries to um, assist them to realize where are the good areas that they can start to aspire to, and then make those comparisons across um, within the country. Uh, sure, thank you, Rose. Uh, yes, as you pointed out, uh, we recently produced uh, an index in Mexico in which we compare Mexican states. And you raise a very important point, which is uh, sometimes international comparisons are useful and in several contexts are quite useful just for countries to either address and, uh, I mean, uh, just 
uh, draw attention to a particular issue or, or signal particular developments. But more importantly, a lot of the changes happen at the local level, and it's important to look at the success stories within countries. Uh, that, just where, when we developed the index in Mexico, that is precisely what people are more interested in, is in which are the states that are doing well, that are developing policies, how did they develop these policies and overcame challenges so that other states could emulate? Because the, just as you pointed out, just the, the states are probably more similar just than just circum that than, than the uh, the institutions in the states are more similar than institutions of other countries. So it's something that they demand actually that we have heard from both the federal actors as well as the state actors pointing at who should we pay attention to, who is doing interesting things, who has done innovations, and in many cases it happens at the local level just by a particular uh, uh, just. Uh, a person in the government who has the initiative to actually do something, and suddenly it works. And then it creates opportunity for other states actually to, to, to start uh, doing things. So it's, it's actually something important. Obviously, the, there are challenges to, to implement exercises of this magnitude in, uh, in countries, but definitely it's something to pay attention uh, when developing uh, policies for, for individual countries. Last word, Maria. Yeah, no, I would say, you know, from a from a State Department perspective, just, you know, supporting the enabling environment around which the movements are, are happening and the citizen action is is taking place. So using leverage vis-a-vis -vis, uh, security officials, police and the like, um, to at least not engage in repression, which is also can, tends to be a problem in, in Mexico when it comes to protesting. So using that type of leverage, I think capturing those stories as well in cable writing and beyond of what is happening at the grassroots level in meeting with those individuals. Sometimes it gets very focused on the very formalized NGOs in, in countries, and you don't always hear where the innovative citizen action is, is taking place. So I think kind of, um, you know, emphasizing those type of engagements, reporting on it, supporting the enabling environment, and as appropriate, providing support for peer learning, helping activists connect with each other across the region, learn like innovative techniques that may be happening in different places that may be relevant or applicable. So I think providing that type of convening space peer learning opportunities can also be a helpful way to help the activists in those places. So I knew there were more bright spots than we thought originally. So there are opportunities, there are many bright spots. Um, so I want to thank all of you for coming here today. Uh, special thanks to uh, Betsy and William from WJP. Uh, thanks to all the staff that came together to make this event happen. Um, this is what, if there is such thing as institutional friendship, this is what it looks like. Everyone collaborated, and uh, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank members of the audience and participants for coming in. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.